even average memories are remarkably powerful when used properly. Hey, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my book review of a not boring book on memory, which is Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Fuer. And so in this book review, I'm going to break down a bunch of cool little factoids and things that I learned from this book. Some of them are kind of mind-blowing. And then I'm going to give you some pragmatic kinds of takeaways. Even if you don't decide to read this book, you will emerge from this listening experience of merely this podcast uh, a bit more enlightened about how to use what is between your two ears. And as per the usual, all of those link rabbit holes that you may choose to delve into, those are going to be found on LimitlessMindset.com, linked below, where I have got this book review. And this is this is probably one of these podcasts that you may want to share around because it is one of these really cool things that virtually anybody can do to improve themselves. It's a thing that has a multiplicative effect on your personal power, and it's it's surprisingly accessible, as you're going to learn in this podcast, and it is free also. So if you think that's pretty cool, please do share this around or give this podcast or video, wherever you're consuming, consuming it, an upvote, a like, one of those uh, algorithmic little signals that it is... Uh, that it's good, that you like it. Or you could even leave me a uh, positive review or rating on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to me. Okay, so let's dive in. And I had, a, I had a thought, okay, I had a thought as I was finishing this book, which was that around the biohacking sphere of the internet or kind of this personal development sphere of the internet that overlaps with um, health and fitness stuff, the promise of attaining a limitless mind and memory is really oversold and then under-delivered on. So no, a $39 multivitamin that is combining a few garden variety nootropic compounds, that is not going to enable you to learn a language in a week. Sorry, not gonna happen. In my 11 plus years now of obsessive research and self-experimentation, I've identified a few tools and the best ones are free or pretty cheap. I've identified a few tools that actually do sharpen both my long-term and my working memory. Moonwalking with Einstein is about one of them, mnemonic memory 
training. And the others I'll mention briefly in this review. So about the book, Moonwalking with Einstein, in the author's own words, quote, this is about the year I spent trying to train my memory and also trying to understand it, its inner workings, its natural deficiencies, its hidden potential. It's about how I learned firsthand that our memories are indeed improvable within limits and the skills of Ed and Lucas can indeed be tapped by all of us. It's also about the scientific study of expertise and how researchers who study memory champions have discovered general principles of skill acquisition, secrets to improving at just about anything, and how mental athletes train their brains. And the author, indeed, was a U.S. memory champion, and he uh, was elevated to the national spotlight. I think I first saw him on the Colbert Report. Yeah, the Colbert Report. Back in the day when Colbert was actually funny, I saw an interview with this guy a long time ago on that old show. Maybe I'll try to find that old interview and I'll add it to the blog version of this. And what's remarkable is that he was able to attain that championship after just a year of practicing mnemonic memory training, which I find remarkable. In how many fields can you attain national acclaim after just a year of practice? And I didn't get the impression from the book that Fouer had a lot of innate talent. He admits to having pretty mediocre memory prior to encountering the weird and wacky world of memory competition. His achievement speaks to how easy it is to get from Padawan to Jedi Master as a mnemonist, which is a person who practices these memory systems. First, an important question that the book addresses thoroughly, which you may be kind of asking yourself, why train your memory when it's so easy and convenient to externalize memory? So I started externalizing memory at a very young age with this cool leather bound notebook that I would bring with me everywhere. I would use it to uh, get phone numbers of new friends, people that I wanted to hang out with. Now we find ourselves in the midst of a Cambrian explosion of externalized memory tools. We got Evernote, smartphone voice memos, Facebook friends, birthdays, reminders, voice command taking, virtual assistance, project management software, 
If you're a traveler or a digital nomad, you simply take a photo of your of your hotel door number so that you'll remember it. You don't even bother remembering it. You just you just take a phone, a uh, smartphone photo of wherever you're staying, so that if you I don't know you get drunk and then you forget where you're staying or or you or you don't remember it in the first place because the technology has become such a crutch. We have dash cams in our cars. We have automatic recording of Zoom calls and email reminder apps like Boomerang. And then next year, they're going to invent a hundred new clever externalized memory tools. You can think about the some of the AI revolution that is burgeoning this year, the chat GPT and the weird AI art. And you can just think of how in the future, we're gonna have apps that are probably using AI to externalize our memories and then to feed back to us our memories. It's, it's gonna be weird. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that particular direction, but I'm sure it's coming to a smartphone near you. And the author writes in the book about this. He writes, imagine waking up tomorrow and discovering that all the world's ink had become invisible and all our bites had disappeared. Our world would immediately crumble. Literature, music, law, politics, science, math. Our culture is an edifice built of externalized memories. So why bother investing in one's memory in an age of externalized memories? The author questions, and he writes, the best answer I can give is the one I received unwittingly from a man whose memory had been so completely lost that he could not place himself in time or space or relative to other people. That is how we perceive the world and how we act in it are products of how and what we remember. We're all just a bundle of habits shaped by our memories. And to the extent that we control our lives, we do so by gradually altering those habits, which is to say the networks of our memory. No lasting joke, invention, insight, or work of art was ever produced by an external memory. Not yet, at least. Our ability to find humor in the world, to make connections, between previously unconnected notions to create new ideas, to share in a common culture. All these essentially human acts depend on memory. Now, more than ever, as the role of memory in our culture erodes at a faster pace than ever before, we need to cultivate our ability to remember. Our memories make us who we are. They are the seat of our values and the source of our character. 
He also writes, to the extent that experience is the sum of our memories and wisdom the sum of experience, having a better memory would mean knowing not only more about the world, but also more about myself. Surely some of the forgetting that seems to plague us is healthy and necessary. If I didn't forget so many of the dumb things I've done, I'd probably be unbearably neurotic. But how many worthwhile ideas have gone unthought and connections unmade because of my memory's shortcomings? And also, apparently, the average person squanders about 40 days a year compensating for things he or she has forgotten. Wow, 40 days. That's a colossal waste of time. Although I have no idea how they measure that. It seems like a difficult, really difficult thing to measure. Fouare also writes, pick any human endeavor in which people excel and I'll give you even odds, 50-50 odds, okay, that some psychologist somewhere has written a paper about the exceptional memories possessed by experts in that field. And I would also contend that the problem with externalizing so much of our memory is that our innate memory becomes so atrophied and weak, it's like a muscle, if you don't use it, you lose it. It becomes so atrophied and weak that we begin to forget to even use our externalized memory tech. For example, I have a few people in my life who really should remember to call or send me a message on my birthday, yet, they often forget, which stings just a little every year. And these people are chronically online millennials. There are a multitude of well-designed, intuitive, and free apps that they could install on their fancy smartphones that they spend many hours every day using to remind them of my birthday when it rolls around once a year. Yet, often they still miss it. I, I, I think we've all had experiences with that, with people who are have their face, have their nose in technology all day long. And there are so many apps that they could use to remember some of the simple things that they should be doing, yet they still forget. That's the reason why we still want to, that's the reason why we should not abandon the innate memory that we are, uh, that we are born with in lieu of technology. Also, I want to share a recent and very practical example of how I used mnemonic memory systems. So seeing all the recent news about the collapse of major cryptocurrency exchanges that scammed their, their customers, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? I mean, in one way, it's kind of mind-blowing how heartlessly and ruthlessly and how stupidly 
they were in scamming their customers. But on the other hand, it's it's so totally predictable, right? Whenever you concentrate power, you uh, people people can't resist being evil. Anyways, so given all this news, I decided to self custody all of the crypto that we have that me and my wife had have invested in. I decided to self custody it in a secure offline wallet. And the problem with self custodying crypto is that if those private keys of yours are, are if those ever get leaked, then your crypto will be gone in no time. Sayonara. And we like to think that our computers and smartphones are pretty secure, that they are more or less safe places to store usernames, passwords, and wallet keys. But every year, hackers write clever and clever viruses that creep onto our devices to log our keystrokes and peer into our most private files, looking for a way to snatch our cryptocurrency. So I decided against storing my private keys anywhere digital. I just wrote them down along with my 12 word key phrase. But the issue with this is, of course, what if I lose that piece of paper or I spill a cup of bulletproof style coffee on it, blotting out my precious key phrase? Then my crypto would also be irretrievably gone, potentially. And I don't have the inclination, I don't have the time or the inclination to store my seed frayed in multiple bank safe safe boxes, the uh, way that the uh, Winklevoss twins apparently do. Go read that book. That's, that's, that's a pretty mind-blowing book about them. I'll link to that book in the article. So I came to the conclusion that the safest place for my precious key phrase is really between my two ears. But if I forget it, then my crypto will also be gone forever, which is why I had to make damn certain that I don't forget those 12 words. So I turned to mnemonics. I spent a few minutes writing with pen and paper a very silly little story. It was a very silly little, rather politically incorrect, silly little story. Uh, a cancel-worthy silly little story. In fact, associating all those 12 words together in the correct sequence. Then over dinner, I shared the silly story with my wife. She laughed at the absurd associations I came up with. And then she was able to tell the story back to me, thus committing our precious uh, key phrase to memory, future crypto fortune secured. Mnemonics for the win there. Next takeaway from the book, you already have a photographic memory. 
What you have to understand is that even average memories are remarkably powerful if used properly. And that was said by one of the characters in the book, Ed Cook, and he was a grandmaster of memory. He was one of the competitors that Joshua met along his journey. So universal photographic memory of imagery at least is strongly suggested by a series of studies that are described. Quote, your memory for images is that good. He was referring to a frequently cited set of experiments carried out in the 1970s using the exact same picture recognition test that we just taken. Only instead of 30 images, the researchers asked their subjects to remember 10,000. It took a full week to perform the test. That's a lot of pictures for a mind to keep track of, especially since the images were, especially since the subjects were only able to look at each image once. Even so, the scientists found that people were able to remember more than 80% of what they'd seen. In a more recent study, the same test was performed with 2,500 images, even when the images differed only in a tiny detail, people still remembered 90% of them correctly. And this I found kind of mind-blowing. So they did a series of studies uh, beginning in the 70s, real simple studies, where they would show people an image and then they'd show them a series of images and they'd say, they'd say, try to take a mental snapshot of these images of just random things, uh, a, a box, Muhammad Ali uh, in a boxing match, a, uh, a Corvette sports car, a, uh, an old barn in the woods, whatever, random images like that, okay? And then what they do is they show people double images. They show people two images on a screen sets of images, right? And one of those images would be one of the images that they saw previously, and one of the images would just be some other new random image of, uh, of whatever, a politician, you know? And the people would have to mark, say, I think I have a feeling I saw that image of the barn before. Okay, and, and so it turned out people are actually quite good at this. Even people with Average memories are quite good at intuitively remembering the image that they actually saw before. And what they're saying here is they expanded this out to in one 30, was it 30,000? Okay, they expanded it out to 2,500 images. Uh, and people, and then they had just a tiny detail that was that was different in there and people were still 90%, 90% there. So even if you think of yourself as having nothing special in terms of innate talent in remembering, you still have hidden away a 90% there photographic memory. That's That should inspire you to 
uh, unlock it a little bit more, right? The author also writes about different types of memory. This phenomena of unconscious remembering, known as priming, is evidence of an entire shadowy underworld of memories lurking beneath the surface of our conscious reckoning. Though there is disagreement about just how many memory systems there are, scientists generally divide memories broadly into two types, declarative and non-declarative, sometimes referred to as explicit and implicit. Declarative memories are things you know you remember, like the color of your car or what happened yesterday afternoon. Non-declarative memories are the things you know unconsciously, like how to ride a bike or how to draw a shape while looking at it in the mirror. These unconscious memories don't seem to pass through the same short-term memory buffer as declarative memories, nor do they depend on the hippocampal region to be consolidated and stored. They rely primarily on different parts of the brain. And moving towards a bit more pragmatic approach, what? how do we actually do this? Imagery is the key, or visualizations are the key. Quote, the general idea with most memory techniques is to change whatever boring thing is being inputted into your memory, into something that is so colorful, so exciting, and so different from anything you've seen before that you can't possibly forget it. And I'll quote from Adherinium. And Adherinium is the original self-help book for mnemonists, and it was written by Cicero himself over 2,000 years ago. I think the publishing date was something like 90 BCE, which is which is pretty remarkable. This is something people have been doing for, for a long time. And he wrote, when we see in everyday life things that are petty, ordinary, and banal, we generally fail to remember them because the mind is not being stirred by anything novel or marvelous. But if we see or hear something exceptionally base, dishonorable, extraordinary, great, unbelievable, or laughable, we are likely to remember that for a long time. So the idea here, what underlies these memory systems, is to create visual associations, visual associations, visualizations to see things in your mind's eye that are as weird and inappropriate as possible. That's how we make them stick. So you want to use cartoonishly absurd cinematic scenes, disproportion, ridiculously massive quantities, sexiness, violence, or even your own relatives 
So to memorize your boss's birthday, you might just have to visualize your own granny banging Barney the purple dinosaur. Sorry, not sorry, to uh, put that image in your head. But that kind of image may might be just what gets you on your boss's good side. It might be just what enables you to remember your boss's birthday, engendering the goodwill that you need in the boardroom one day to advance your career. Also, memory systems entail perusing memory palaces. The author explains, memory palaces don't necessarily have to be palatial or even buildings. They can be routes through a town as they were for one of the characters, or station stops along a railway, or signs of the Zodiac, or even mythical creatures. They can be big or small, indoors or outdoors, real or imaginary, so long as there's some semblance of order that links one locus to the next, and so long as they are intimately familiar. And so memory palaces, you're probably somewhat familiar with this idea, which is that let's say you want to remember something. Like let's say that uh, you are uh, secretly a Bitcoin millionaire and you are going to uh, get your Bitcoin off of those shady crypto exchanges and you want to store those those 12 key phrases uh, just within your own mind because you're worried about the uh, dastardly uh, IRS <laughs> agents coming after you to steal your Bitcoin, right? That's kind of the, the, the political paradigm that we seem to be advancing, advancing towards here in the, the last chapter of Atlas Shrugged. So you've got 12 key phrases that you are trying to remember. And so what you would do is you think of a place that you're not going to forget, like maybe your childhood home. Most people can remember pretty distinctively their childhood from childhood home. And you imagine the entrance of the childhood home. Maybe it's your driveway, front gate, front door. You imagine the first key phrase associated in some way with the with with that first stop let's say that you had like a flower planter box there in your in in in, in your childhood home and let's say that your uh let's say that your first key phrase was uh popping just for example okay so popping that would make me think of Mary Poppins, right? Um, so you would imagine imagine the, the flower box or maybe a garden. Maybe your family home has a garden in front of it. Uh, and you imagine Mary Poppins there in your in that garden. Imagine her levitating there. And then she pops, okay? And it's a, it's a gory scene. Her body, she, her body just explodes. It's disgusting, right? This would be how you would remember the first place 
in your memory palace. And then as you advance through your childhood home, as you walk through it mentally, you do other associations that are hopefully as striking in the other places. And this is how you create a memory palace. And this is how people remember uh, remember a lot of things, how people remember speeches, how people remember uh, extensive, extensive things is that is yet yeah, is that geospatial imagery memory, which is which is so effective. One of the points the book makes, and this was something that I learned, is that you you can only use you can only use a single place, typically, typically, okay, you can only use a single place at, for a single set of memory. So you wouldn't want to use your childhood home for your cryptocurrency seed phrase, along with remembering um, remembering a, a phone number uh, or, or, or something else like that. You would need to use your best friend's home in your childhood for the phone number, for the other thing. Because, yeah, if you're placing memories in a physical place, you're going to confuse yourself, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. And so this kind of brings me to a shortcoming of Moonwalking with Einstein, which is a 317-page book. And so... This is more story and character driven. You'll learn some fascinating things about human memory in it, but it doesn't do all that much to guide you through learning the mnemonic memory techniques that the author mastered in a year. And for that, you're going to need another book, which is the memory book, the classic guide to improving your memory at work, school, and at play. And I do link to this book. In fact, I've got a a shorter review of that one. This book gets real practical and pragmatic. In it, you're going to learn, for example, the pegging system for remembering numbers, which are abstract and hard to visualize. You know, you're thinking about something like popping. You're like, oh yes, the word popping, that's easy to visualize. Mary Poppins popping, right? Easy to visualize. But what about numbers? What about 17? How do you visualize 17? What about uh, 1,717? How do you visualize that? And I'll give you a really fun example. Let's say I ask you to remember the number 918527195216390921212. Let's say I asked you to remember that number. Let's say it was actually really important that you remember that number it'd be next to impossible, right? But what if I asked you to remember a beautiful naked blonde jumps up and down? A beautiful naked blonde jumps up and down. That's a lot easier to remember, isn't it? And this 
unforgettable phrase. I still remember it from when I first read that book, the memory book in high school, nearly 20 years ago. This unforgettable phrase will evoke that exact number to a mnemonist with a little experience with the pegging system. And I'm showing you a cheeky video of my wife jumping on a trampoline. She's not blonde or naked, but she's bouncing up and down and hot. <laughs> so these are the kinds of things that you need to uh, visualize. This, this is the way that you improve your memory. It's funner than you might have expected. Next, on how to memorize a speech. The question of how to best memorize a speech, text, or, or whatever has vexed mnemonists for millennia. The earliest memory treaties describe two types of recollection. Memoria rerum, rerum, memoria rerum, and memoria verborium, memoria verborium. Memory for things and memory for words. When approaching a text or a speech, one could try to remember the gist or one could try to remember verbatim. The Roman rhetoric teacher Quintilian looked down on memoria verborium on the grounds that creating such a vast number of images was not only inefficient since it would require a gargantuan memory palace, but also unstable. If your memory for words hinged on knowing every word, then not only did you have a lot more to remember, but if you forgot a single word, you could end up trapped in a room of your memory palace staring at a blank wall, lost and unable to move on. Cicero agreed that the best way to memorize a speech is point by point, not word by word, by employing memoria rerum. In his book, which was De Orator, he suggests that an orator delivering a speech should make one image for every major topic he wants to cover and place each of those images at a locus. Indeed, the word topic comes from the Greek word for topos or place. The phrase in the first place is a vestige from the art of memory. So this is a kind of situation you could imagine yourself. Maybe you're gonna end up on a stage in front of an audience at some point, or perhaps you're just, you're a salesperson and you want to be able to hit all of the, you want you have seven or eight different points of competitive advantage of whatever you're offering. And you want to be able to hit all seven of those points when you're on the spot in front of a hot client without fumbling and trying to look at your notes or your brochures. And so you would create um, a relatively simple memory palace of this could be a childhood home 
or it could be a, uh, a walk in the woods that you like, or it could be a route that you take when you're jogging. And you would just place those seven, you'd place an association of those seven different things along that route. And then you would have your speech, you would have your speech not quite word for word perfect. You wouldn't be like an actor delivering the exact lines that were written by the scriptwriters, but you would be covering the important points. And with repetition, you would you would you would nail the words, the exact words. And you may have a script that you want to hit right on the head. And over time, that memoria rerum of simplifying things and generalizing a bit is going to is going to result in that word for word recognition. I do hope you try that. Those of you that have some sort of speech that you might need to remember. Okay, next let's talk about upgrading your memory. Supposedly from the book, our ability to process information and make decisions in the world is limited by a fundamental constraint. We can only think about roughly seven things at a time. Have you ever heard this before? And if so, if not, this one, I contend it can be hacked. And it's hacked with what's called chunking, which is described in the book. Chunking is the way to decrease the number of items you have to remember by increasing the size of each item. Chunking is the reason that phone numbers are broken up into two or three parts or uh, plus an area code and that credit card numbers are split into groups of four. And chunking is extremely relevant to the question of why experts so often have exceptional memories. And your short-term working memory, it can be upgraded in about 20 days with dual and back brain training. 20 days is the minimum. It might take more than that. 20 days is enough to make somewhat of a difference. It might end up taking as much as six months, but you can significantly impact, you can hack your short-term memory with this boring brain game. I'm gonna link over to my review on it. You're going to want to check that out. And anybody who has devoted themselves to mastering dual and back training, I'm actually coaching a very cool guy right now with his dual and back training practice. And he's already, he's already telling me that it's, it's changed his, um, it's changed his capacity to focus a bit. That's it. He reported that to me actually just a little while ago. Anybody who's devoted themselves to this brain training will know that the seven things, that seven things isn't the real limit of the human mind. Because in the brain game, you have to keep track of dual sets of audio and visual information. You could think of those as chunks. Your long-term memory of facts, happenings, and skills is a different system 
than your short-term or working memory that you are now using to concentrate on, uh, well, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're driving, whether you're at the gym, working out, whether you're just uh, strolling while listening to this podcast, that's your short-term working memory. But those two things are entangled. And anyone who's done dual end back training, as they advance, they know that seven isn't their limit. Perhaps that's the innate limit, but as you train your memory, you'll quickly advance beyond keeping track of seven things in your in your short-term memory. In fact, my in fact, about set the seven back was my highest score that I attained in dual end back. And so in that instance, I am I am keeping track of 14 things at a given time. And there are certainly people that have scored even better in dual end back that have that have reached higher levels that than, than I have because I did a period I did a period of about six months where I was very committed to dual end back and then I kind of went on to other personal development projects but I know that there's some 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 even greater geeks than I out there that have spent years making like a part-time job out of their dual end back training that are that are they are probably up you know, managing 20, 30 things in their, in their short-term memory. And so again, short-term, long-term memory, these things are entangled. Those precious long-term memories must be constituted and reconstituted by your short-term memory for you to access them. And this is why you get TikTok brain, to use a very 2023 phrase, this is why you get TikTok brain and you can't seem to remember anymore the name of your first boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, perhaps. Because when you do things that hurt that short-term working memory, you're, you're, you're distancing yourself from being, uh, being able to access the riches of your, your long-term memory. That's why you shouldn't, yeah, that's why I'm not a big fan of things like TikTok. That's why I think that people should spend a little bit more time doing meditation and brain training as opposed to uh, just scrolling and using social media. And this is also probably a good point for me to mention one of my favorite brain and memory apps and that is this one called Super Memo. And this is a flashcard app where as you're learning things, I am trying to learn to speak Bulgarian, which is a very challenging language. And what it does is you, it's pretty simple. Maybe you've used flashcard apps before. You put a word or phrase into as one half of the flashcard. And then Super Memo has an algorithm that predicts, and it actually does a pretty good job of predicting when you are going to forget the phrase. And it prompts you to practice right before you're usually going to forget. And what this does is it kind of gives you like the, it kind of gives your memory 
the optimal dose of effort while saving you time. That's fascinating, isn't it? Um, you have to try it because it does work pretty uncanny. So for example, it's giving me the phrase, do you want me to close the window? And I'm pretty sure that the Bulgarian phrase for that is, iskushli da zatvoria prozoretsa. I'm going to double check. I think that's correct. And you, you can tell, I had to think about it a bit. That was not a Bulgarian phrase that I know really well. That's, that's one that's slightly a challenge for me. And maybe I even got it wrong. I'll double check what I'm done with this podcast. But what I urge you to do, if you really do want a limitless mind and memory, you're going to want to use the three tools that I've mentioned here, which is the mnemonic memory systems, the dual and back brain training, and then super memo. You're going to want to use those three things. And you'll actually be pretty impressed with how quickly your memory improves. Speaking of self-improvement, let's rise above the OK Plateau, which is explained in the book. The autonomous stage of learning any given skill seems to be one of those handy features that evolution worked out for our benefit. The less you have to focus on the repetitive tasks of everyday life, the more you can concentrate on the stuff that really matters, the stuff that you haven't seen before. And so once you're just good enough at typing, we move it to the back of our mind's filing cabinet and stop paying it any attention. You can actually see this shift take place in fMRI scans of people learning new skills. As a task becomes automated, the parts of the brain involved in conscious reasoning become less active and other parts of the brain take over. You could call it the OK plateau, which is the point at which you decide you're okay with how good you are at something, turn on autopilot and stop improving. And so this is pretty fascinating, but also kind of common sense now that it's described, which is that basically if there's, if there's a skill, once you get competent enough with that skill where you can do it like, okay, then your brain says, okay, we don't really need to worry about this skill anymore. And you end up kind of in this valley of mediocrity. And this might be why there's, for example, oh, there, there's some dish, there's some dish that you've, that you cook and you, you cook this dish on a pretty regular basis, but maybe your brother-in-law can cook that same dish, but he can do it like way better than you. And it's for some reason, you're like, I do this all the time. Why can he cook this same dish as me, but do a way better job than me? It's not, it's, it's not fair, especially given, you know, all the time that you might, that you might spend on 
trying to do that. And that, uh, that competence, that unconscious competence that you've reached with it is precisely why you're not better at this. So what they were finding, for example, what they mentioned with typing was that people, so you can, you can think about when you learn to type and you begin by doing the, the hunt and peck, right? Where you're looking down at the screen and you're hunting with your, with your fingers for the key that you need and you're really slow. It takes you like 30 minutes to write us two sentences. And then you get a little bit better where you can, where you can type and look at the screen and your words per minute improves. So that's kind of the valley of mediocrity there. And if you want to become a, a an amazing typist, if you want to become like one of those people that can do uh, like two, 300 words per minute, what you need to do is increase the challenge, push yourself out of your comfort zone. And apparently with typing, this is pretty simple. You just, you just try to type faster. What you do is you, is you say, okay, I'm going to type so fast that I'm going to make errors. I'm going to accept that I'm going to make errors and go back and correct those errors, but, but I'm going to push myself into the error zone. And if you do that over time, you'll actually, you'll increase that your words per minute uh, and decrease those errors over time. But you have to embrace the failing to improve, right? Interesting. Interesting, isn't it? A personal example of this was when, for a long time, when I was a single guy, I knew about this whole world of like social dynamics and persuasion and trying to be like a pickup artist. And I would try to do some of that, that kind of stuff, but I was never very good at it. And then I moved to Latin America and I had to learn Spanish. And then I had to take all that stuff that I learned about uh, trying to be a pickup artist and I had to go and do it in Spanish instead, do it in my second language. And that is when I, that's when I actually got pretty good at that kind of stuff. That's when I actually kind of developed good game, which resulted in me uh, meeting a really great girl and getting married and we're happy together. So it, it all worked out for the best, but it was the fact that I had to, that I had to embrace failing and add a new layer of challenge on top of a skill set that I had a little bit of competence with. That's how I got to the next level and actually got what I wanted. That's fascinating, right? So I hope that you can push yourself a little bit further out of your comfort zone and break through that okay plateau. And another thing that I'll mention that I find fascinating about this whole world of mnemonics is that it is a historical hack. I was talking earlier, I mentioned Ad Herinium by Cicero, and that's right. The memory training, this is something that goes way, way back from the book. Once upon a time, every literate person was versed in the technique in the techniques Ed was about to teach me. Memory training was considered a centerpiece of classic education in the language arts on par with grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Students were taught not just what to remember, but how to 
remember it. So the mnemonic memory systems, I don't think anyone is really certain exactly who invented them in the first place. It seems to be Greek authors uh, talking, talking about them and then uh, some Roman authors talking about them. So personally, I'm kind of like a Western chauvinist. I think that the West is the best and I'm proud of the Roman heritage the Greek heritage, I, I don't live that far, actually. For, I live a couple of hours from, from Greece, from the place where some of these things originated. My, my wife has a bit of Greek heritage. And so I see these memory systems as, 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 as a way of kind of getting in touch with uh, my roots, uh, getting in touch with the roots of the civilization that I'm a part of that I esteem. And you can look at some of the, some of the good ideas that Western civilization has had, uh, democracy, human rights, uh, philosophy, some of the good ideas that Western civilization has had that have been a, uh, a beacon that has illuminated the world, made it a bit more decent kind of place. A lot of these ideas were percolating up out of the minds that were using these memory systems. Because back in the day, back in the day using scrolls, the way they did books with these, with these scrolls, these, I've read about this in other, in other books, the scrolls were extremely difficult ways to learn and to cross-reference information. And so, people really had to learn to train their memories. And I contend that it is, it is so criminally negligent. It is so criminally negligent, in my view, that we don't teach these memory systems to our young people. Our young people are brought through at least 12 years of uh, formal education if that's what you want to call it, without a single hour devoted to teaching them these memory systems, which unlock, unleash the capacity, the innate capacities of the, of the human mind, which are pretty impressive. And I bet they're even more impressive in children. Yet we have this, our educational system, and I, I contend that it is so criminally negligent that we don't teach this to young people, that we don't enrich uh, the minds of the youth with these memory systems, which are so much fun. I contend this is so criminally negligent that teachers, uh, principals, administrative uh, professionals in this monolithic, corrupt bureaucracy of education. These people deserved, at least a few of them, deserve to dangle from short ropes for the fact that we do not teach young people about these systems. When I discovered them in high school, I was like, oh, this is, this is such a fun way to learn, to remember things. That's, that's, that's my rant. I do hope if you have kids, that you'll teach them some of these systems. Next, let's talk about hacking time dilation.
Interestingly, according to the book, monotony collapses time while novelty unfolds it. You can exercise daily and eat healthily and live a long life while experiencing a short one. If you spend your life sitting in a cubicle and passing papers, one day is bound to blend unmemorably into the next and disappear. And this is probably something that you've experienced, that when life is very routine, it seems like months and years are passing by very quickly. But then when things, when there's some change, uh, change for the worse, change for the better, it seems like life is going a little bit, it seems like uh, life is going a little bit slower. And there's another book that I'll direct your attention to on this topic, which was the 2 a.m. principle. And this was a book by a another, I think he was a psychologist, but he was a major self-experimenter. And he came up with quite the formula for adventure and for slowing life down with novelty, which is a bit more complicated than you might think. You'll want to at least check out my book review of that one. Okay, here's a question I know some of you are asking. Will memory training help you to pick up chicks? And the author writes about one of his fellow quirky memory competitors. He says, he was in no conventional sense handsome. And yet later that night, I watched him approach a woman in the street, ask for a cigarette, and a few minutes later, walk away reciting her phone number. His normal bar trick, he told me, involves shimmying up to a young lady and inviting her to create an arbitrarily long number and then promising to buy her a bottle of champagne should he successfully remember it. Wait a minute, that's not fair. Shouldn't she? I think she should be buying the bottle of champagne. If he re- that He's the one who's achieving an amazing feat of memory. I don't see why he is buying the champagne in this in this scenario, I, I think I should maybe sit down with these memory competitors and and give them a few a few tips on uh, dealing with the fairer sex. Uh, I find it unlikely that this bar trick will lead to a romance, love, seduction, or even a first date. A a good memory is an is an indicator of intelligence, which is something that women find attractive, but rarely in isolation. Merely being intelligent is not all that attractive. If you're going to try to impress women with these mnemonic memory systems, with these sorts of techniques, I suggest that you do so and then quickly move on to content for chemistry, the 14 topics that women find Stimulate. You'll want to see my video on that. And I also found it interesting. He did mention in the book a few times, he talked about the other memory competitors smoking. 
Apparently, this was uh, a vice that some of them shared. And this is not all that surprising because nicotine is a pretty powerful nootropic. Nicotine is a pretty powerful smart drug itself. And it probably did the smoking, the nicotine, it probably did help their memories uh, with the with the downside of being really awful for their health, which long-term is not gonna be good for their memories, which is why I, when I use nicotine, I don't smoke. I use it in a little bit different way. You can check out the articles and videos that I've got describing all that. And as I move towards my conclusion, I have an interesting point that I derived from the book, which is that creativity is future memory. That's right, think about that. Creativity is future memory. Here's why. Creativity is the ability to form similar connections between disparate images and to create something new and hurl it into the future. So it becomes a poem, a building, or a dance, or a novel. Creativity is, in a sense, future memory. If the essence of creativity is linking disparate facts and ideas, then the more facility you have making associations and the more facts and ideas you have at your disposal, the better you'll become at coming up with new ideas. As Buzan likes to point out, this was another character in the book, a very colorful character in the book who was a memory guru. As he liked to point out, Mnemonicene, the goddess of memory, was the mother of the muses, the muses of creativity. That's that's really cool. That's really cool, isn't it? There, there's certainly some uh, wisdom, some deep insight into human nature in uh, that that Greek mythology. And I will uh, put a, an image of Mnemonicene in my my blog article. Maybe, maybe you want to get that image of Mnemonicene and and print it out so that you uh, you know put her above your computer so that you have some some inspiration to practice these techniques. So in conclusion, this book gets four stars from me. It infuses a lot of personality and compelling narrative into the art, practice, and science of memory, something many have not given a second thought to, even though we all rely on memory every waking moment of our lives. But it doesn't quite get five stars from me because I think the book could have easily been a hundred pages longer with a few chapters guiding the reader through the techniques themselves. Again, for that, I'm going to direct you over to the memory book, which is a real practical guide. However, the memory book is actually a very old, it's an old book. I think it was written maybe in the 60s or the 70s. And I would be interested in maybe maybe this year, maybe next year, I'd be interested in a little bit newer book on mnemonic memory techniques. Of course, these are techniques that are 
timeless, just as relevant now as they were 2,000 years ago, just as relevant as they will be 2,000 years into the future, should uh, should our species survive. <laughs> yeah, um, but the I'd be interested in some of the new ways that people are using mnemonic memory techniques. I bet there's I bet there's some things out there. I'm going to continue my exploration into this topic and will be dragging you along with me. Also, I should probably mention, for those of you who have listened this far into this podcast, there's some of you who are probably still wondering and thinking these mnemonic memory techniques, these sound like a lot of effort. Isn't there just some drug I can take that will do this for me? And not quite, but sort of. And that drug would be paracetam. I've experimented with over 200 different nootropics and smart drugs at this point. And the one that makes the biggest difference on memory, on improving memory, in my experience, that is paracetam. And I do also link to that for those of you who are curious. But frankly, you don't need it if you're yielding with with some competence the other tools that I've discussed here. And I would love to hear from some of the mnemonists of the internet out there. I'd love to hear what are some other books on this. I'd love to hear about the techniques that you are using. Or I'd be curious about hearing what sorts of uh, stacks, what sorts of tools you people are combining. As I mentioned, in my experience, the three tools that I really like are the mnemonic memory techniques, the dual end back brain training, and super memo. Those are the three things that I think share synergies, but I bet there's other things out there. And so I do hope that you leave those in the comments or you shoot me an email or a message. And then finally, I want to just mention a reading motivation life hack, which is that I log all the books I read with Goodreads. This is a app and also a website, goodreads.com. Go check it out. And at the end of the year, Goodreads produces this very share-worthy page, your year in books. It's kind of a, it's a report. It's a, uh, it's something you could use to brag. Basically, I share that around at the end of the year to, to brag about the books that I've written, that I've read. Although my wife always ends up reading more than me. And I find that this uh, report motivates me to actually read more and finish the books that I've got on my bookshelf before the year ends. So I've got the, the bragging rights. And no coincidence, I finished Moonwalking with Einstein on December 31st. So yeah, those are some things. If you've got just a little bit of TikTok brain and you need some bit more motivation for reading great books that are going to enrich you, do, do check out that tool. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. Looking forward to a continued conversation with you.